a student came in uh, with a shotgun and pointed it at my head. And thankfully, he was unable to get the safety off the gun, so it didn't fire the first time, uh, which gave us all that were there a, a chance to kind of take cover. And I was able to get into a supply closet behind my desk. And um, about the time I shut the door, he, he fired through the door and the bullet went through my hand and um, kind of sent shards of wood. So I had some wood in my eye and my chest. I couldn't see very well. Hello, beautiful humans and damn givers. Welcome to another episode of Let's Give a Damn. It's me, your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I have conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being here. I'm incredibly glad you showed up. If you have a few extra seconds today, I'd be honored if you would leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or maybe consider sending this episode to a friend or two, or 10. Every share and like and review and rating and comment means the world to me. My guest today is amazing. Taylor Schumann's life was upended in 2013 when a young man came into her workplace and tried to kill her and as many people as he could. The shooter failed, but still shot Taylor in the hand and injured other parts of her body before a brave security guard talked the shooter into giving up. That insane and almost deadly day made Taylor an activist. And over the past few years, Taylor has helped so many people think through gun control issues. And one week from the release of this podcast conversation on July 20, Taylor's brand new book comes out for you and for me. It's called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Make sure to pick up your copy immediately. The link will be in the show notes or you already know how to shop online. On her website, she writes, Alive in the gratitude of the aftermath, she's obviously talking about the aftermath of the shooting that almost killed her, of course. Alive in the gratitude of the aftermath, I write the truth of my own story and the stories of countless precious lives affected daily by the crisis of gun control to implore others to join me in meeting the suffering around us with wholehearted attention. I write to ask simply that we resist the impulse to look away. Friends, you're going to love Taylor's hard, difficult, and beautiful story and life. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, tell me how much you love or hate the show, suggest future guests, whatever. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Taylor Schumann. Let's go. Such an honor to have Taylor Schumann on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Taylor, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Yes, we have been uh, internet friends. Uh, That's a thing in the last decade, right? Where you meet these people and you feel like you know them. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like if we hung out, we'd already be like, you know, many steps ahead of just meeting, you know, each other for the first time. But we've never met before. We're still not 
truly meeting each other, right? We're on these, uh, these laptop screens, but I'm, I'm, I've been so impressed and grateful for your work. Um, ever since I did find out about you a year and a half, two years ago. And I am truly excited about this conversation. I really am. Thank I'm not you. saying that because I'm supposed to say that. I've been, yeah, just touched deeply by how you take care of people online and share with people and encourage people. And so this is a this is a real joy for me. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank um, you. Let's start with, I, I do want to start with just asking generally how you all are. Uh, we are not out of this pandemic yet. This, um, I know a lot of people think that it is, but this Delta variant and all these different things that are happening, we're not finished yet. But I do think we're on the on the other side of it for sure, yeah. a year and a half in, which is crazy to say that we've been doing this for you know almost eighteen months. Yeah. But how are you all? How's the year been? What have I mean? Are there have you guys seen any? you know, real benefits from the extra time being secluded in that home? What's taken place in your y'all's life over the past uh, year, year and few months? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's it's been pretty busy for us. My husband is a pharmacist um, at the VA hospital here. And so he has been um, on the team heading up the vaccine and stocking the vaccine and making sure they have enough, you know, uh, drugs to treat COVID, the the things that they do use. And so for him, it's been a pretty stressful year. Um, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease during the pandemic just a few months mm. ago, um, right around the time I got the vaccine. So I am still, you know, wondering like, oh, is, especially with the Delta variant, like, what does this mean? We have a young son who can't get vaccinated. So um, I think for parents with young kids, even if we're vaccinated, which we are, there's still that fear of, you know, how can this affect my child? And are we really doing what we can to keep kids safe who can't be vaccinated? And, you know, my husband goes to work every day at a hospital. We don't know what he's exposed to or bringing home. Um, but, you know, I, I think we've definitely become closer. You know, we, we went through a lot this year. Um, and like everyone else, there's that lack of uh, family support. You can't just call people to come in if you needed them, like you might yep. be able to before. And so we really had to learn to rely on each other. And, and I think that was good for us. So yeah, there's definitely, you know, bright spots in the midst of it, but we're tired. <laughs> like yeah. everyone, I think we're just kind of in a constant state of being tired. <laughs> yes. But, yes. You know. The, the, the kid thing is interesting. That's all I think about right now. Yeah. Because, uh, again, obviously we have three kids and we, we got, we got the vaccine at, you know, as soon as we could. Yeah. But, um, a lot of people aren't digging into the, you know, the data now because in, in their minds, it's like, we're on the tail end. We've been vaccinated. It's all over, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's not, it's not, yeah. it's, it's, first of all, we don't have the proper travel restrictions in place and much of the world is still yeah. dealing with this. Like, like they're where we were five, six months ago or worse. Right. And if they yeah. can get access into this country, there are still tens of millions of people that are unvaccinated. And I love vaccines and I, I think they're amazing, but they're not, you know, hundred percent efficacious. And so right. you've always got this, like, even as a fully vaccinated person, I still wear a mask wherever I can yeah, because 
there's still a chance that I can get it. And, 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 and then, and then with my kids, like even if I don't get it, can I carry it into the home yeah. where my three kids are? We're, you know, we're visiting family right now, some of which are not vaccinated for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't understand it, but here we are and we're seeing them for the first time in a year and I'm enjoying myself while simultaneously all it's always present. Like, yeah. like, please stay safe kids. Like God, yeah. please protect them because I wouldn't want that on any of my family members that like, Oh, we stayed safe for a year and four months. Then we came and visited you and this happened. Like, yeah, it's just, there's just still on the edge of our seats. Like all the time. I feel like I'm always yeah. there. And I think it's such a classic uh, American attitude to be like, Oh, well we have so much of that vaccine here. We're doing pretty good. So the pandemic is over <laughs> and like, Oh, it is not. And, you know, we're kind of sitting on stockpiles of vaccines now, and and I'm hoping we can help get those into other countries who are not so fortunate and, and help get more people vaccinated. But it really is like classic America to be like, well, we want it to be over. And so it, it's over. <laughs> and the epitome of that attitude was this past week, right? With July 4, right? We're oh, celebrating yeah. Independence Day. Um, when, you know, women and people of color were not free at that time. Yeah. Uh, so many kinds of people uh, yeah. were not free at that time, but it, there's no convincing a good chunk of Americans. They're like, no, that was our, you know, that was our freedom day. That's when we became free. And it's like, no, that's, it's, it's not at all. And even my, I mean, sadly, even a lot of the people in the quote unquote tribe that I run in the very progressive crowd, it's like, you guys are, you guys claim to be the caring, loving, you know, inclusive ones. And you're just out there living your life now that you got the vaccine. And I'm yeah. like, it's just very, we're still not over it here, definitely. And the rest of the world is still suffering so deeply. Like we've got to have this, you know, I always call myself a global citizen before I even yeah. talk about where my passport says that I'm from. Um, and yeah, it's a very uniquely American attitude. We could talk about that for an hour. Let's not, yeah. or else we'll, we'll just go, <laughs> we'll go into that deep rabbit hole and we won't come out of it. Yes. Um, I do want to say this here at the beginning. I know that you have been doing a million interviews, you know, as you prepare for the launch of this book. Uh, I know somewhat how that feels. Uh, and I'm sure you're tired. You just talked about getting up in the middle of the night because of a tornado, you know, watch and, you know, this tropical storm. <laughs> And so all I wanted to say here at the beginning that I want to remind you that um, this book you're putting out, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, is super important and you're amazing. And I want to remind you to take care of yourself. Um, and I really, really, really thank you for being here today because I wouldn't have uh, 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 been surprised at all if you had said, <laughs> we're not doing it. I'm tired. I just need to sip on coffee and not talk to anyone. Um, so I just wanted to say that before we really get into it, it's like, I can understand at this point. Um, and I, I don't know what your book situation is, but you're not this like humongous author at this point yet. And so I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure the advance and all the support around you was not enough to compensate for just like, I know the struggle of like getting something out there, like really yeah. getting it out there and it's on your yeah. back to promote the hell out of it. Yeah. And so, um, just a reminder to take care of yourself and, Thank you. you know, try to enjoy this season as much as possible. Yeah. Cause I know it can get crazy. Yeah. Thank you. So let's start with just some story. I want to, before we get into the work that you're doing and the book that you've written, 
um, let's get a little context for who you are, where you're from, the people, places, yeah. and things that have shaped you and made you into who you are today. Obviously, like try to build it up to, uh, you know, 2013, where your life, you know, completely changed. But where, I know you're in Charleston now, but where did you grow up? Um, what does your family look like? What was that dynamic look like? Was it was it uh, really good, somewhat good? Uh, what are some of the things that shaped you and brought you to this point uh, today? Yeah, I grew up um, actually in Southwest Virginia um, in a town called Salem. It's right outside of Roanoke. Um, I went to Virginia Tech for college. And um, I, yeah, I grew up with uh, my mom and my dad and I have a younger sister. And um, we grew up going to church. Um, you know, I've been a believer since I was a very little girl and we had a, a great home. Um, super supportive parents that loved us and um, never put a lot of pressure on us to be a certain person or, or do certain things. And I'm really thankful for that. I, a lot of people didn't have that. And, um, and I did um, really conservative. I grew up watching Fox news all day long. I have very specific memories of like seeing things on Fox news, um, you know, and I, my parents would like quiz us on who is, in the president's cabinet and all that stuff. I had a very uh, large political knowledge base for a young kid. Um, and, and yeah, and so we, we were really close in that way too. We talked politics a lot and um, yeah. And then um, in 2013, um, I was engaged at the time. We were about six weeks away from getting married and um, uh, I was working at a community college and a student came in uh, with a shotgun and pointed it at my head. And thankfully he was unable to get the safety off the gun. So it didn't fire the first time, uh, which gave us all that were there a, a chance to kind of take cover. And I was able to get into a supply closet behind my desk. And, um, about the time I shut the door, he, he fired through the door and the bullet went through my hand and, um, kind of sent shards of wood. So I had some wood in my eye and my chest. I couldn't see very well for a little bit. Um, he shot one other student and she survived as well. Um, and yeah, uh, he kind of went around the school trying to gain access to classrooms and, and firing um, bullets, but no one else was hit. And then um, actually an off-duty security guard was driving around with his wife. It was their anniversary and he was listening to the police scanner, which I'm sure his wife loved. Yeah, um, that's great date night material yeah. right there. <laughs> and heard about the shooting over the police scanner and he drove to the school and got out and came in. He was unarmed, um, just like really put himself in harm's way when he did not have to do that and got the shooter to drop his weapon. And about that time, the police got there and they were able to get the rest of us out safely. Um, I was able to, to come out and yeah. And then the kind of the rest of the story begins. So, so much to unpack there. When you, yeah. when you, when you said, um, when you said that he, I mean, I presume his intention was to blow your head off. Yeah. Uh, not to be too crass about it, but that, I mean, a shotgun that yeah. at point blank range, that's what it's going to do. Yeah. Um, like when you said that the trigger or the, 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 the safety was, was, wouldn't work like that, just like, you know, made my body like physically react because that's, 
it's got to be a really, and I hate, you know, I, I love that you're sharing your story with us and so much to learn today in this conversation, but I hate that you have to like relive this each and every day, whether it's preparing for your book launch, because that has got to be so traumatic. I can't even, I mean, it's bad enough the, you know, and we'll get to him shooting, you know, your hand and the shards and all that. But like, can you remember anything about that moment when you thought this is it? Like, there's no, I mean, you didn't know the safety was going to work or not work. Like what, yeah. what was that? What were those? And I'm sure everything felt much longer than it actually was. It was a few seconds yeah. and it probably just felt like it was going on and on. And when will this ever end? But what was that moment like for you? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that I didn't even know that had happened Oh, because part, so part of my job was, um, I, I kind of worked at the front desk in administration and part of my job was to operate the security cameras. Um, so we didn't actually know the whole scope of that first moment until mm -hmm. someone watched the security camera, um, and saw what he was trying to do and how close he was to me. So when I turned around, he was pointing the gun at me, but I didn't know he had been already trying to, to fire it. Um, my boss was with me and she got up and ran and he followed her. And, and so I ducked under my desk and in that moment, it kind of hit me. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no yeah. idea what to do and there's nowhere for me to go. And he knows I'm here. Um, and that was, you know, one of the most terrifying parts. And, um, so I, I, I knew I could get up and, and get into that supply closet. I knew that was like my best shot. And I knew that the door, um, was a fireproof door. So it was really thick, you know, about mm -hmm. eight inches thick. Um, and they had told us, you know, in an emergency, go in the closet. It's a really thick door. So that's kind of all I remembered from any sort of emergency training, but I couldn't lock the door either because the door locked from the outside and my keys were at my desk. Um, so I basically felt like a sitting duck, essentially. Um, and when I finally realized that I had been shot, you know, I looked down and there's just blood and I realized it's just me in here. Like, this is mine. Um, I was losing a lot of blood really fast and I had no way of calling 911. I didn't know if anyone else had called 911. And that was when I, I just felt like I'm not going to make it. Like no one is going to get here fast enough to help me. Um, and I was really praying in that moment. I, you know, I remember really not being able to find any words to pray. I was just sort of pleading with God to like be with me. And, um, you know, the worst moment was I, I was just thinking about my fiance at the time and my family and all the things that I wanted to do, my pets, I was thinking about my dogs and um, just never being able to leave that closet and how I was going to leave them all. And that just made me so sad. Like the, the emotional pain of that was almost as bad as the physical pain I was feeling. It was so heavy. It just made me feel like I couldn't breathe. And, and I remember praying to God, like, if you're going to take me now, please just do it fast because mm -hmm. this is, I cannot sit here and wait. Like this is so painful. Um, and about that time, you know, I, I just really felt the presence of God with me and, and I, I decided, well, I'm going to do what I can like to survive this. And then I grabbed my hand and put it above my head to try to stop the bleeding. 
And about then is when he came back and shot through the door a second time. And the bullet went right where my arm had been against the door and, and missed me by a very small distance. Um, Did he know you were in there or was he just like, yeah. he was just, so, but you said the the door was not, did he just not think to open it? Cause you said it was, you couldn't lock it. He just was maybe in a frenzy and just was just uh, wasn't maybe he assumed it was locked because it's you were possible. In there, right? Yeah, it, I he heard me slam the door and go in. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if he just assumed it was locked. Um, you know, the the police told us later, you know, he really didn't know what he was doing. He kind of had all these grand plans. Yeah. Um, you know, he had pulled up his car um, that you know, on one of the, like the side doors, there was a kind of a space to go in and out. And he'd pulled up his car there to try to block the door so that if people tried to leave, they they wouldn't be able to get out. But he didn't pull his car up far enough. So everyone was able to, to go out that door. And um, yeah, it just seemed like, I mean, thankfully he didn't know what he was doing. I do not wish he was better planned, but there were some of this where I think just like the chaos of the moment for him, um, he wasn't able to do what he wanted. I am so deeply sorry that you had to experience that. I, I mean, I can't imagine the, even the lingering and ongoing trauma that, that causes, um, Thanks. just horrific. I mean, the, the, most people won't feel, or, or it's very rare to feel what you just described where, I mean, you were shot through your hand and like you said, shards of wood in your eye and all, all this physical pain you're feeling and that emotional pain of just waiting to die. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the loss that you know is coming from your family and your pets and, you know, you wanted to get married and all these things that you plan to do with life. Like for you to state that that was a, that was more painful than the physical pain you were feeling, like that's pretty intense. Um, and horrific. And, and I too am very thankful that he didn't know what he was doing, uh, that he didn't know that yeah. the door was unlocked and that he could have walked right in. How long did that whole, <clears throat> from the time that he, from the time that you didn't know that he was pointing a shotgun at your head to the time that this amazing security guard, um, you know, got him to, uh, stop. How long was that? A few minutes longer? It was about five minutes. Jeez. And it, you know, when I came out, I was asking people, what time is it? You know, how long was I in there? Because it felt like hours. And they were saying, it was only five minutes. It was five minutes. And I was like, You've, that's not possible. <laughs> like, I I thought I was going to come out and it was nighttime, you know? Um, yeah, it was, it was about five minutes. Do you know at this point how the security guard, an unarmed person, uh, got him to stop? Did he just talk with him or was the guy like out of options and was like, this is not going according to plan. I should probably stop. You know, I think it was a little of both. Um, I think he, he basically came in and, and talked to him and, and just simply asked him to drop his weapon. And he did. And so I think it was probably a combination of him feeling like there wasn't a, a, another option um, and, you know, I hate to try to like get into his mind too much, but I do think that at some point he felt like he was in over his head 
and it and it wasn't going to go the way that he wanted it to. And um, I don't even know that he really wanted to be doing it. Part of me just thinks he wanted it to be over. Um, he had actually written on um, 4chan, you know, the most yep. classy website on the internet. Yeah, super classy. Um, from the parking lot of the school before he came in and told people what he was going to do. Um, so he, he had posted saying, you know, I'm, I've got a gun and I'm at New River Community College. He posted a picture of the school um, and was talking about how it was going to be um, worse than the Virginia Tech shooting, which had happened, you know, just down the road from where we were. Um, and yeah, actually some people from 4chan saw it and called the police. Um, but yeah, I just think he didn't really know what he was in for when he started. So you, you came out alive, thankfully. What were the next like few days, weeks, months, like the recovery, the not just physical recovery, the emotional recovery, not that you're recovered at this point, eight years later, but what was that? What was the, the near journey like after that happened? Because again, I can't imagine the after effects of experiencing something like that again not only recovering physically but also just like what the hell just happened and how yeah. am i still alive yeah so i think the weirdest thing is that when something like this happens to you you know it wasn't an accident like it was right. a crime and so you become evidence um mm. and i hear um you know sexual assault um survivors talk about this too is that you know they're they feel like they're not in charge of themselves because they're, they are evidence and they're used as evidence. And, um, so, you know, once I got to the hospital, um, the first hospital we went in and there was just a room full of doctors and nurses. And I remember asking the nurse, how many of us are there? Cause I just expected dozens of people. And she was like, it's only you at this hospital. And so there I got my first set of x-rays, um, pain medicine started, um, my husband was able to find me there and my mother-in-law, um, and they realized they had to transfer me to a bigger hospital to, to get the services that I need. But that was the first place that someone came in and told me like, I might not get to keep my hand. Um, and thankfully they were wrong. But when I moved to the second hospital, um, that's when my family arrived and, and I got to see them. But that's also when I started having to talk to police and uh, a forensic nurse who had to ask me a lot of questions about what I saw and what he was wearing and what kind of gun I thought it was. So, you know, you're immediately having to relive it and start talking about it. Um, in some ways, I, I wonder if that was good for me. Um, you know, I kind of had to start getting things out of my head and, and sharing. Um, and then, you know, I, I had my first surgery that day and I was in the hospital for about five days. Um, and it was scary. It was just scary. And the other, um, victim was there, but we weren't allowed to talk to each other. Um, we had police outside the room. Um, no one was allowed to know I was there. So, um, you know, we weren't allowed to tell anyone because we didn't know the whole scope of the event. So it just all felt really surreal. It just felt like you know, what am I doing? What has happened? You know, I, I remember waking up the next day and seeing it on the news, you know, the ticker on the national news that, about the shooting. And my picture was on the front page of the paper. 
and it just starts setting in, oh, this happened to me. Like I'm, I'm one of these people forever. Like, um, so I, you know, I went through a long, um, journey of physical therapy for my hand, more surgeries, and then, um, a long period of counseling. And I'm, I still see a counselor because counseling is the best. Um, and you know, I had the experience where I saw, um, for about a year, a, um, a Christian counselor who was also fully qualified as a licensed professional counselor. Um, and, and she was a gift to me and she really helped me try to be a person again, um, help heal my heart a bit and my mind and, and help me kind of be okay reentering the world because everything was scary. You know, the day I left the hospital, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go home because yeah. I was safe at the hospital. Yep. And when we got into the car, um, my dad turned on the radio and that was the day of the Boston Marathon bombing. So that was the first piece of news that I heard when we got into the car. And I remember, you know, my dad kind of immediately turned the radio off and we all just sat like in silence because I think it just kind of hit everyone. Like we can't experience this the same way that we used to, um, you know, news like that. And, um, yeah. And eventually I started seeing a, um, a clinical psychologist who specialized in PTSD and with shooting victims. And he helped me kind of understand trauma and, and PTSD and, and what my body had gone through and, and how that was affecting me and really helped me feel more capable of understanding that and listening to myself and, and figuring out what I needed. Um, and so I think both of those pieces were really important. Um, it was, it's very uh, 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 interesting that you, and I, I don't know if I've even, I've, I've, uh, worked with a lot of sex abuse survivors and survivors of other kinds of violence, but I, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. And I don't know why I missed it before, but that idea of you become evidence because it wasn't an accident. It was a crime committed against you. You have to relive this thing over and over. I mean, I know that part, but the, the, the putting the word evidence on it, like you became evidence in a crime. Yeah. It's, it's inevitable, but it's horrific that you have to put these, you know, again, whether it's, you know, a sex crime or somebody wanted to kill you in a, in a, in a, in a shooting, you have to put someone through that trauma over and over and over again so they can hopefully find, a, you know, a conclusion, justice in that crime. Yeah. But that's a, but that's a horrific, <laughs> uh, that's a lose-lose situation for everybody, you know, to, Keep yeah. putting, keep putting that victim, that survivor through that process over and over and over again. Yeah, because uh, if you think about it, you know, I wasn't uh, prosecuting the case. It wasn't being done on my behalf. It's it's done on the state's behalf. Right. And it's the same way, you know, with lots of other crimes. So you're kind of involved because it happened to you, but you know, you're just, you are sort of a side piece of it. And you don't, there's no benefit. The, the, the young man who committed these crimes, he's in prison now for a long time, but mm -hmm. that doesn't benefit you at all. Right. Like right. you didn't, you didn't win the case. This wasn't your right. case to win. So yeah. Side piece is a, is a, a, a good way to put it, but a horrific way to put it as well. Like yeah. you're, you're in this to help the state win their case, which is, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I guess it needs to be that way, but that's horrible yeah. all in the same, all at the same time, you know, that yeah. you had to get dragged through this and there's no benefit to you. Like your life, I guess maybe there's some peace of mind that he's uh, not able to continue doing this, but also, um, but I hate our, you know, we could talk for hours on our prison system and how <laughs> yeah. is, is, is he actually getting rehabilitated over the next right. 40 years? Right. Like, right. no, no. Um, there were other problems at play. Why did a 20, 20 year old, um, it, I, I don't know anything about this young man, but I assume it wasn't that he loved crime and that he loved shooting people. No, it was, he wasn't cared for. He wasn't taken care of. Um, and he's not going to get that help. So it's a lose, lose for everybody all the way yeah. around in yeah. something like this. And you, and you were one of the main people that they needed to help, you know, take this thing across the finish line. Yeah. Um, you know, I read something very, uh, also discouraging. Um, we'll get to the positive things, I guess, at some point, but the, the <laughs> other, the other young lady, uh, yeah. Christina, mm -hmm. you know, uh, an immigrant came here to study, to seek, you know, a better life for her family. Yeah. And then after this happened, she was like, hell no. Like, yeah. I need to get out of here. I don't feel safe here. This American dream, this American promise, uh, you know, was not, what she experienced and what so many people don't experience, right? Like I grew up overseas, um, didn't come back to live here f like full, full time until I was in my, you know, early twenties. Mm -hmm. And I've never understood, like, I'm, I believe that I'm here for the long term. you know, like I want to leave the U S but I also want to be part of the solution here. So I think we'll be here for the long term. I think, but I've also never for one moment felt the need to buy into this uh, this this bullshit narrative that this is the greatest country in the world and that yeah. everything here is amazing. And if you want a better life, come here. Yes, in some ways, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, yes, it is easier to start a successful capitalistic business here, right? Like that, because we're set up to do that well. Yeah. And sure, maybe there are other types of opportunities but I believe, you know, one of the things that a lot of, you know, conservative politicians like to tout all the time is, and 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 non-conservative, but, you know, people are coming here in droves. They're coming here because they know that there's a better life here. And I'm like, no, no, no. Many of them come here only to be super disappointed. Yeah. They come here because the TV set told them, the internet told them that there's a better life here. But once they get here, uh, they're realizing, wait, I don't know that I'm any happier here than I was in my third world country where I came from or whatnot. And it's very disappointing to know that many, many people come here seeking a better life from wherever they came from, successful or not successful countries uh, all over the world. Um, and then they're, and then someone tries to kill them while they're at school. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a whole different side of things. But I do think that and I, I know you touch on this in different ways on your social media and in your writing and stuff like that, but we've got to be, and I saw so much of it. I got trolled so hard this, this July 4 when I, you know, I posted certain things that kind of struck a chord and I am a little more provocative by nature anyway. Um, I'm ready for, I'm ready for the genuine like dialogue. I'm not, I want to talk with people I don't agree with, but I do like to start conversations, you know, using provocative ideas and statements yeah. sometimes. And yeah, there are so many Americans that still cannot get their head around the fact that we are, we came here, stole this land, and then we stole people from other, from other continents to come here and 
build us all of our shit. Like yeah. that's how we built this thing. That doesn't mean we have to hate ourselves or this country. And right. that doesn't mean we have to, you know, necessarily like give all the land back and leave. I'm not saying that's what we have to do, but we, but let's just begin with being honest and being real about how we got here. Yeah. Um, you know, figure out how we, you know, pay reparations and how we, you know, find solutions for the things that we've done and the things, you know, the, the crimes we've committed in the past, and then we can move on. But this whole idea that, you know, we started talking about it. And even with this, like this young lady coming here for, with this dream, like we can't fix, and, and maybe this is a good time to kind of jump into your book and what you're trying to accomplish there. Cause we cannot fix the, the plethora of problems that we're experiencing in this country without first just realizing, like, let's just be completely 100% honest about who we are and, and what we're dealing with and how we got here. Yeah. Then, then we can start fixing problems. And if we're going to keep feeding ourselves these false narratives and these distorted narratives and these half-truths about what we've done, how we got here, that gets us nowhere. As parents, you and I know this, yeah. like we, like when we try to put band-aids on issues or problems, even with young kids, I never thought I would be having adult type conversations with my young kids about their feelings and their emotions because I grew up in a household where frankly, my dad just, you know, and he's a whole totally different person now. He's amazing. But my dad's solution with 12 kids was just you're, you're screwing up. Like you're going to get the shit beat out of you. Yeah. And then, then we'll talk about it very briefly and then we'll move on instead yeah. of like really tackling the problem. Right. And so now as a parent, I'm learning that to really get to the heart of the problem, it's already at six, eight, and nine, our three kids, like we're having to have deep conversations yeah. each and every day and stay up late. And, and I'm like, I thought that was teenager stuff. And now <laughs> we're doing it even now. So, yeah. um, yeah, so let's let's do that. I've just ranted for a minute, but like let's talk about this book that is coming out a week from the release of this conversation on July 20. When thoughts and prayers aren't enough, a shooting survivor's journey into the realities of gun violence. I know that this book is made because you're someone that adheres to the Christian faith. I know that you're coming at it from that angle, and I think mm -hmm. you're talking mainly to Christians, right? Because yeah. that's a whole that's a whole different uh thing, right? Like even apart from this country's obsession, obsession with guns. You would think that some of the first people to relinquish that obsession and to not partake in it are people that have uh, not just Christian religious background, but, you know, of all kinds of faith backgrounds. You would think that they would be the first, and yet we have just, the, I think, the people pushing it the most, pushing the agenda, for lack of a better term, the most are white Christian middle class, well, all over the spectrum, but white Christian evangelicals. They're the ones saying, this is our right and this is how we need to live. This is what God, the, the, co-opting, you know, uh, uh, these ideas in the Bible and co-opting this God figure and saying, this is who God wants us to be. We're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be taking up arms. We're it's just a, it's a shit show right now. Um, and it shouldn't be this way. So talk about, let's start with, when did you know, so 2013, this horrific thing happened to you and to Christina, mm -hmm. then, you know, months and years of recovery, when was it that you decided what was happening in your life and in the, in the country around you that made you decide, I need to write a book called when thoughts and prayers <laughs> aren't enough. Um, 
And it's what's funny that I have a shirt that says, I don't know if you've ever seen this shirt that we sell at Let's Give a Damn. It has thoughts and prayers and let's give a damn. And the thoughts and prayers are crossed out. And then it just says, let's give a damn. Again, people, everybody that listens to this show knows I'm a I'm a I'm a deeply faith-oriented person. I I I'm hesitant to call myself a Christian, not because that's not who I am, but because of all the baggage that comes with it. But so when I have thoughts and prayers crossed out of my shirt, it's not that thoughts and prayers aren't important. It is that they are not nearly enough. That is a, that is a, a small percentage starting point. And then we've got to get to work. So talk about the beginnings of this book before we actually dive into the content. Yeah. So, um, I think that for people who, who don't know me, um, or just know a little bit about me, it would be what they think is that before I was shot, I was pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment. I got shot, and then I was anti-gun and all sure. in on gun reform. That's really not what happened. Um, you know, I, I began questioning things kind of early on after being shot, um, but I was still kind of in the zone of, well, guns aren't the problem. Um, it's just evil in the world. Um, you know, we need more mental health services, all those kind of talking points. I was very much in that camp. Um, and I kind of, what happened was that shootings just kept happening, Yep. which sounds so simple, but it's almost like after something really awful happens to you, you see how bad it is. And you're thinking, well, this is so bad. Why would we let this happen to other people? It, It won't, you know, it won't happen again. Surely not. Yeah. Something terrible, terrible happened. We're going to fix it now. And yeah. Yet, yeah. That doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 And so then, you know, sh- I would hear about shootings on the news and obviously that was really hard for me. I had to be really careful with, you know, how I consume news and stuff, but it just kept happening. Um, and then, um, in 2015, um, one of my friends from college was, was shot, um, on live television. Um, and, and he was killed in that shooting, um, along with his coworker. Wait, when was this like shot on live television? Yeah. Um, yeah. Back in 2015, um, the, a new station out of Virginia, um, my friend Adam and his coworker, Allison, they were, yeah. A former coworker Mm. came up, snuck up on them, uh, live on the news and they were both shot to death. Um, and another one was shot as well, and she survived. Um, and that kind of prompted me just to think, like, how is this possible that me and, like, my community of friends and people I know have been affected by gun violence so many times? You know, we all went to Virginia Tech, so we, you know, we're in that community. Um, yeah. When I was at Virginia Tech, a police officer was shot to death on campus. And so we had to be in lockdown. So it just felt like, how have we all been so affected by all this gun violence, like in a short amount of time, like this, this doesn't make sense. And so I really began reading and researching and and kind of trying to uh, make something make sense between my faith and what I had grown up believing about guns and what I was seeing happening in the world and kind of the lack of response from people I loved and um, people who I thought should be talking about it more. And so I started kind of speaking out, um, doing some wading into the waters of Twitter um, activism world. And then um, the the real turning point for me was in 2016 when the Pulse Nightclub 
shooting happened. And, um, you know, that happened late on a Saturday night. So I heard about it that Sunday morning and we were going to church and I just thought, well, we'll talk about this at church. Like we'll, we'll pray for these people, you know, over 50 people were murdered to death. Like we'll talk about this. We'll pray for them. And, you know, we sat there and waited and, and nothing was said. And I just thought if we can't even offer prayer for this piece of national news that certainly we've all heard about, like, that's a problem and I'm not going to do this anymore. And yeah, that was really like what kind of launched me like all into, to gun reform and, and talking about that. Um, you know, this, this thing that I had held on to for so long that, you know, guns are our right and it's good to have guns and we need them for self-defense. Um, the, the people I was meeting that had been affected by gun violence, the people in my life who had been affected by gun violence, it just didn't make sense to me anymore. I couldn't make it make sense. Um, so I had to find some a new way forward. Yeah. I mean, those are horrific things that you've described. Your, 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 your friend and their coworker. And then the Pulse, yeah, the Pulse nightclub shooting was a wake-up call on multiple levels because it was... You know, there were so many things going on there, right? It wasn't yes. just, you know, a disgruntled student. It was clearly a hate crime on top of yes. on top of just dozens of people being murdered and many more being injured. Yeah, that was one of the most horrific Sunday mornings I can remember, um, yeah. because it just felt so surreal. Not yeah. not to downplay what you and Christina experienced, but we're also we're also kind of numb. And you hear about a, you know, I'm sure before I even knew you, I'm, I know that I heard about this right way back when. Right. And it probably struck me like, what the hell's going on? But also like, oh, it's, and I, I hate to even think this way, but it's like in this country, you kind of put buckets, you put these situations in different buckets, like, oh, it was only two people and yes. they didn't die. Yes. So not that bad. Yes. And again, that's not true, but you kind of, again, it happens here so much. But then the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, and that was like, I mean, if you just picture 50-plus people in your head, like, that's a lot of people gone, many more injured. This is so – it's horrible on so many levels. When I think it was so different, for most of us, we went to bed, you know? Yes. We were sleeping. So many, you know, school shootings, mass shootings, so many of them, we hear about them in live lifetime, and and we – you know, we're scrolling Twitter for updates and we're waiting to hear the numbers. And, um, and this was, you know, we, we went to sleep and we were just sleeping and their families were just sleeping at home. And then we wake up and find out that, you know, I think 57 people were killed and it's just unfathomable. Yeah, it's unfathomable. It, it, it truly is unfathomable as you've, I, I've done quite a bit of, um, reading on this as well, but I'm sure you've yeah. read me at this point because you, you know, you did a lot of like studying and researching for this book. Yeah. From your, from your, from what you've learned and from your perspective, why are guns such an idol in this country? And you can speak specifically to what that looks like in the Christian community, if you'd like, mm-hmm. but why are they such an idol? And why is it so so damn hard to get any sensible we're not talking about extreme like i would love (laughs) i would love for us to just like get rid of all the guns 
It's not yeah. a good way. It's not a good pastime. It's not a good hobby. Like yeah. I would be okay if there was a way to make sure all guns were gone. I'm totally in. But we're not even asking for that. I'm talking sensible right. gun legislation. Like yeah. get rid of certain types of guns. Uh, make it harder for people to get them. Yeah. None of this stuff passes. Like it, it, and if it does, it takes a hundred times longer than it should. Yes. So why, where does that come from in this country, and why are we experiencing that, and why does it take so long to change these types of things? In your, again, according to your research, and just in your, from your perspective. Yeah. So I think there's a few things at play here. Um, I think guns, because it is, you know, written in in the second amendment in our founding documents of our country um there is this sort of sense around it that it is sacred um you know i think of growing up and learning about the constitution declaration of independence and our founding fathers like these people were very much propped up as like perfect godlike figures that like had this great idea for a new country and and began forming this country and wrote down these uh, flawless words that, that we should build our country upon. And um, so when you have that view about the foundation of your country and how it was created, words like, you know, you have the right to bear arms, um, they become uh, untouchable. Yeah. And and so we, we really view that as, well, that's my right and I'm allowed to do this. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't say anything about regulation and laws. I'm just allowed to have have guns. Um, and so there is sort of a sense of sacredness about that. Um, I think the other thing is that it's, it's very much a control issue. Um, the world is a scary place. And for a lot of people having guns, um, is something that makes them feel like they have some control over what happens to them and what happens to their families. Um, whether or not the research says that that is true, which it doesn't, um, right that's an emotion and and people are tied to that and they maybe grew up with that and that just feels right to them. And, and so it's hard to argue with someone saying, well, it makes me feel safe. Um, and then we have to look at the way our country is founded as well. Like before even the writing of these words, you know, we fought against a tyrannical uh, form of government to form our country and to have freedom here. And so people will say they need their guns to, in case, you know, we have to rise up against the government. So it's sort of baked right in to the yeah. fabric of our country. Um, and it, it makes it sort of untouchable. And then of course we have, like you were saying with getting laws passed and things, you know, in, in our country here in America, over 90% of Americans support things like stronger background checks and red flag laws. And yet we have um, Congress that finds it absolutely impossible to reflect the views of their constituents, the people they're supposed to represent. And that is largely because they're getting a lot of money from the NRA who pays them a lot of money to get them elected and expects them to vote certain ways. And, you know, we could talk all day about money and government and lobbying and all those things. But unfortunately, that's the way it works right now. And that's what we've got. And, you know, when you have an NRA that's spending millions of dollars to get candidates yeah. elected, those candidates would like to keep their jobs. And yeah. NRA money is a large part of that. So they don't have a lot of incentive to vote against an organization like that. And that makes it really hard to get good laws passed in this country. I know, obviously, you were sharing 
you weren't sharing your views. You were sharing the the roadblocks, right? Yeah. And those are so, those are all so insane to me because I feel like, at least for the, like, the okay, let's go back to the, the first thing you said about the, it's baked right into the constitution. Um, One of the things that I bring up when I have these conversations with people in my own family, friends, you know, that love their guns and that they, they hold the, they hold the, 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 the feelings and the beliefs that you just described. I mean, let's just start with, it's an amendment. It's an amendment. It's an addition, right? On top of that, even if it was part of the actual first founding document, this document promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to white landowning males. Yes. Not we to got it black wrong. people, not to women, yeah. not to people of color, yeah. not to anybody else except white landowning males. So the yes. document is flawed. In other words, like from the very get-go, I yes. have no allegiance and no respect for this document. I think we should rewrite the whole damn thing to reflect our current realities because yes. you know it's it's an old it's an old, you know, meme at this point, but it's like back when they said that you should have the right to bear arms and that the government shall not infringe upon that right. It was a one-shot musket that yes. took 10, 12 min- what, minutes to to reload, right? Yes. Not the case right now where even in a well, a handgun, you don't even have to have an AR15. Just a regular a regular 9 mm or a third like you can have many rounds shot, you know, fired consecutively. You could hurt mm-hmm. lots of people before you have to reload. It's not our current reality. So yes. I hate when people, it is true. What you described is exactly the case that they present, yes. but it's so flawed. I mean, it's so, yes, if, it if, is. If, if it was a blank sheet, there's a million holes in your sheet. Like yes. it just doesn't stand up because you're going to, you're basing everything back on this document where it's flawed from the beginning and these are amendments. They were additions. That's what uh, I say. We have, why do you think we have amendments? It's because they realized it wasn't perfect the first time they wrote it. Yep. Um, and yet we, you know, you still hear this term living document and that's, you know, how we're able to create amendments and, and yep. new laws and things because it's a living document. Well, guess what? If it's a living document, that means it's, it needs to change over time. Yep. Um, to be appropriate with the times we're living in. And like you said, it's, uh, it, I think it would be unfathomable to the people who wrote the second amendment, what guns would look like now and what they would be used to do. And, um, and so, you know, I think it's, we have to take the second amendment and say, how does this, um, how is this like theoretically we can think about that, but how is it being used practically in 2021? What is, what is the application of this? amendment now and does it still make sense to interpret it the same way or to hold it with the same view if if this is the way it's affected our country and there's a real disconnect there many of the many of the people that would uh, defend uh these gun rights these you know uh, uh uh these gun rights with no limitations on them are christians yeah um again, as you've been writing the book and thinking about this a lot, like how do we, how do we speak to them, talk to them? How do we make stride, you know, steps forward and convincing them that this is not the way, right? Because 
one of the one of the problems I have is that there's especially in the Christian community, there's all this talk about like faith in God and God's my protector and this and that, right? All this talk about this great big God that is able to keep me from harm and protect me and yada, yada, yada. Oh, but he also, but God also needs me to have an arsenal in my you know bedroom ready to take on my next door neighbor or the thief or the government, right? Which it's just a fault. It just, it's, it's so, it's so dumb. The whole thing is dumb in my opinion. Like <laughs> your little arsenal in your bedroom is not like, okay, you think you're going to be able to stop this government that they're not going to turn on you. There's so many, like one good thing about this country is that I don't see that in the next, unless we take really, you know, hard turns to the left, like in a not left politically, just like if we take hard turns, like how we currently do things, yeah. the, the government's not going to come and like take you all captive. There's no scenario where that happens. But yeah. even if they did, your five guns, seven guns, hundred guns aren't going to do anything you know, yeah. against them. Right. Yeah. So, but how do we, how do we talk to these Christians that do claim to have this all powerful being taking care of them to tell them to like, this is not the way, this is not the peacemaker's way. This is not the meek mm -hmm. way, right? You look at the sermon on the Mount, all these things that we're called to, none of them are, oh, and also on top of all these things, make sure you have a closet full of guns. How do we move make moves forward in these conversations that we're having? Because um, even if people listening aren't, a lot of the people, probably 60% of the people that listen are faith people, not just Christian mm -hmm. on my podcast, and then 40% are not at all. So, but all of us know Christians, all of us know, yeah. all of yeah. us know people, Christian or non-Christian that love their guns and that aren't going to give them up for anything or so they think. How do we begin to have these conversations with them. That's what I'm getting at is like, yeah, I find it hard because yeah. to me it's pretty cut and dry and I can find right. holes in the arguments all day long. But again, I'm also, I said at the beginning, like I'm a very provocative person and I'm getting, as I get older, I'm getting better hopefully at having these <laughs> hard conversations, but it's not easy. No. Because this is so cut and dry for me and I get so annoyed at these, just these dumb asinine like arguments that are presented to me. Yeah. How do we do it, Taylor? Help us. Yeah. Well, and I think like you're saying, it, it can be tremendously frustrating because it makes so much sense in your mind that it's sometimes even hard to put it into words because it just feels so true. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. And I do want to say like, my book is written from a faith perspective. Um, some portions are written to, to Christians. Um, and that is not to mean I'm kind of ignoring other groups of people, but I'm a Christian and these are my people and I'm trying to collect them and yeah. talk to them. Yeah. And, um, and I, because I love them and I think that we can do better. I think we can do better than what we are doing now. And because the people I see doing this well are not Christians. <laughs> um, and so I didn't need to write a book to them. Um, you know, one thing that I, I really try to do. And, and that's why I'm so willing to share my story, even if it's hard. And even if I know someone might use it for ulterior purposes, which does happen. Um, I do it because personal stories connect us to reality and they connect us to realities that we ourselves cannot experience. So although gun violence is so prevalent here in America, most people don't know someone who has been shot yeah. or that has been murdered in an act of gun violence. So to them, it's easy to keep it at arm's length, right? You hear about it, but you don't really have to think about it very much and you can move on about your day. 
if you get to know someone who's experienced it, you watch someone deal with it, that can change for you. Um, it's how, you know, I came to be aware of racism and the plates of refugees and immigrants. And like, I haven't experienced that. So I personally cannot know. I have to rely on the stories and the experiences of other people to see what it's like for them and to see how, uh, laws, words are actually impacting people, not just how they look on paper. So for Christians, I think what's really important is to go back to the foundation of the faith that we believe in and the God that we serve. Jesus in the Bible is continually asking people to lay down their lives for their neighbor, to count their needs less important than their neighbor. Uh, We are called to care for the marginalized people, the widows, the orphans, people who are suffering. Um, You know, we see so clearly in the case of the Good Samaritan, like we are to physically help, to physically serve and meet present needs. Um, Not just pray, not just in hypothetical ways. We are to actually meet needs and take care of people and reduce suffering. And we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth to help bring part of his kingdom of heaven, that, that peace, that, um, that joy here. And when we look around and we see the havoc that gun violence is wreaking on our country, 40,000 deaths a year, 100 a day, 200 more injured, 22 kids a day, kids. And then we think about how that's affecting lives, um, persistent poverty cycles, communities that just cannot rebuild because of how prevalent gun violence is there. And then how we've basically uh, allowed underserved low-income communities that experience high rates of violence to continue to be that way in sort of a very specific part of town. Um, And we just allow that to to keep occurring. Um, How is any of this this present reality reflecting what God has asked us to do. Mm. And I know that for many people, having a gun makes them feel safe. And they think that, um, because what people will say to me is, well, I love my neighbor by having a gun so that I can defend them if I need to. That's how I love my neighbor. Okay, that's valid if that's how you feel, because feelings are valid. So I want to acknowledge feelings here. but. The research shows that you are not safer with a gun in your home and your kids aren't safer. Um, You're three times more likely to die by firearm suicide. Um, Women are constantly told we need to carry guns to be safer, to take charge of our safety. Um, Women who possess guns are more likely to have those guns be used on them in an act of violence than to use them to defend themselves. Um, A lot of the mindset we have about defensive gun use came from a study that was uh, discredited widely. It it didn't happen. It, it was impossible for those numbers to exist. So guns aren't used in self-defense as much as we thought. Um, but by then, you know, the damage was kind of done. And, and so people believe that's much more common than it is. Um, and so we start there. I, I know you feel this way because the world is a scary place, but this actually doesn't make you as safe as you think it does. And it actually might cause harm to someone that you know or love. Um, you know, students who commit school shootings, get their guns at home or from family members the majority of the time. Um, and so how is this thing that you love 
actually impacting the world? And could you sacrifice a little bit of that thing you like? Because again, like you said, we're not asking people to get rid of guns. We're asking for common sense regulations. We're asking for universal background checks. Our background check system has stopped over 4 million gun sales to prohibited buyers. It works. Yeah, yeah. But we have to help it work um, by closing these loopholes that we know exist and have yet to close them. Um, Things like safe storage, asking parents who have guns in the home to keep them locked away, separate from ammunition, um, to keep their kids safe and people who come over to their house safe. these things are not radical ideas, but they are different than what people know. And, and they um, might feel a little invasive to people. Um, but what's the trade-off? More kids don't die. It takes you a second longer to get into your gun safe. Like, I, I think that we can find some common ground here, but I do think we have to acknowledge kind of what, whether or not I, f- I agree with those people's feelings. Those are true. And we do need to talk about them. The um, just trying to acknowledge that for them. And, um, you know, I, my role is if I can't go into a conversation about gun reform without assuming the best about the other person, that's not a conversation I'm ready to have because it's not going to go anywhere. If, if I can't, and it's why I can talk to people in my family that don't agree with me, because I know that they want to see less people die too. They just look at it a different way than I do, but I'm still able to go into that conversation saying, well, they want the same thing as me. So maybe we can find a way to connect. And we have, um, it's not all, all hopeless, but, um, so I think for Christians, especially just kind of going back to the foundations of our faith. Um, and, and how that could look. Um, and, you know, then we, we have to get into the whole, like, are we viewing our identity as Christians more important than our identity as Americans? Or is it the other way around? Because they both can't be equal. One is more important than the other. Um, and if we've got that twisted, which I think many people do, that's a problem and that's going to affect how we move forward in this. And, you know, we've seen that so much, even with the pandemic, with COVID, like, well, it's my right. It's my right. I don't have to do this. I don't want to do it. Okay. But is that good for people you love? Yep. Does that fulfill? That that feeling is fine if you live on an island all by yourself, but you're surrounded by people that are affected by everything you do or don't do. Yes. And we, you know, we were built to be in community with one another. And that means that we have to see the people around us and we have to make sacrifices for the common good, not just about what we want, not just about what makes us feel good. Um, And that's hard. We don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. Like I'm the mother of a two and a half year old. And guess what? I don't like to play trucks all day long. (laughs) Helpful to my toddler. It makes him feel loved. And I can play trucks with my toddler. Like I can do that for him. And, you know, if, if we can just kind of take it down to a childlike level, say, yeah. I can give this up if it's good for someone else. Yep. Um, and we're just not very good at that in America. We haven't really had to be, but you it's know. time. Yeah, it's time. Like there were so many things that we didn't know. You don't know what you yeah. don't know in 10, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, whether it's 
sex abuse, whether it's gun violence, whether it's an, any number of issues, we didn't have the data or it was there, but it was, you know, we just didn't have the internet and we didn't have the yeah. accessibility of these, these facts and this data. Yes. Now we do. The excuse yes. is gone. We have to make moves. And one of the things yes. I loved about all that you shared from a Christian perspective was most of that applies to anybody, whether they hold yes. to another faith or don't hold any faith at all. Like the, the idea of loving your neighbor and living a sacrificial life that permeates almost every religion. Yes. And just, I mean, you look at the Stoics, you look at the whoever else, like they've been writing about this for a long time, yes. you know, like these ideas of, yeah, not, not living like you're on an Island and putting others needs before yours. You know, I have gotten called, um, I still have some lingering friendships from my growing up years in very like conservative fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And I still get trolled all the time in the work that I do. And I've gotten called all sorts of terrible things by people because I have made it very clear in private and publicly that I will not have a gun in my home yeah. for safety or otherwise. No guns in my home ever, not ever going to happen because the 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 uh, uh, the dangers far outweigh the benefits by 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 a, a long shot. And I've been told so many times that I am uh, a wimp, a pussy, a this, a that, because I won't take care of my family. Look at you. Somebody's going to come in and kill your family. So I start, where I start from is, I, which is again, also a Christian ideal and an ideal that permeates other religions as well. But it's this mm -hmm. idea of, my life's not that important. Like, if my time to go is tonight because someone yeah. breaks in and kills me, then that was my time to go. Yeah. Um, my life is not that important. And it's definitely not important enough for me to murder someone, whether they were asking for it or not. The damage that I would do to myself psychologically, physically, emotionally, looking someone in the eye across my living room, murdering them, even yeah. if they had every intention of murdering me, that lives with you for the rest of your life. I don't want to live with that. I don't want to live with that. Yeah. That's not something I want yeah. to live with. And so we have to, again, religious and non-religious people like these principles you just shared are the way forward. Like what's easier? Of course, it's easier to have a closet full of guns, but you know what the hard, more, more effective thing to do is to put aside everything about yourself that makes you get guns and spend the next 20 years in your community transforming yeah. the shit out of it. Yeah. Making yeah. sure that whatever causes violence in your area is gone. Yeah. That's the hard work, but that's the actual work. If you just stay in your home with your guns and like waiting for someone to come and get you, you're not, you're not being part of the solution. You are still part of the problem. But if yeah. we can figure out how to reorient our thinking and say, again, I'm not telling people that they can't own any guns and that you can't safely have them in your home. I don't want to do that. And I want less people to do that. But that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is the hard work. If you really want to see, if you really want to feel safer in your community, it's not to have five guns in your closet. Cause as you just right. shared with these numbers and these statistics, you're, you're in danger in your home. Your kids are in danger. Right. If you really want to see change, go out there and be the change. Like, yeah. but it's, but it takes hard work to start that organization or to partner with an already existing organization five, 10, 15 years of work, volunteering, putting in the work, mentoring, yeah. uh, you know, you know, uh, all the things that we can do to eradicate the need for crime. Yes. yes. That's the and, good work. Yeah. And you've touched on a couple really important things here, which is that like you're describing now, local violence prevention programs are the number one way to reduce gun violence yes. in the community. It's not laws. It's 
violence prevention, it's mentoring programs, it's, you know, funding and like helping young people find jobs and like basic things that we can actively influence. Um, you know, I, I think for so many people, they think, well, I can't write a law and I can't pass a law. So like, what can I do? Well, there are things you can do. And if you don't have the time to get out there, give those organizations money, like yep. do whatever you can. These are easy ways to get involved. And then the other thing I think you've touched on here for me is this, um, casualness with which we view guns and what yes. they can do. Um, we have lost, I mean, I wasn't around a hundred years ago, so I can't totally speak to it, but we have lost any sort of reverence we have for this item that is only created to harm yep. and injure. And, you know, someone asked me on Instagram the other day, I was doing, you know, Q and A and they said, you know, what do you want to teach Henry, my son about guns? And, you know, I, I said some things, but I think the number one thing that I want people to really get is that even if a gun is used in an act of self-defense, like you're describing, you know, someone comes into your home, yep. they're trying to kill your kids. If you use that gun in self-defense and you injure that person or kill that person, you've saved your family, but you have done harm. Yep. And that gun has caused harm. Yep. No matter what it was used for, it has caused harm. And not just that for that person, they have a family. Yep. Maybe they have kids, maybe they, you know, they have whatever. So you have created a ripple of harm, whether or not it was for a good reason. Guns always do harm Yep. every time. Yep. And we need to remember that. So what I would like to see for people who want to be gun owners and want to keep guns in their home, we need some sort of standard for this label we have of responsible gun owners. I believe those people exist. My dad is one of them. You know, his guns are locked away. He takes them seriously. He knows how to use them. He goes to the range. He practices all these things. I call him a responsible gun owner because guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't go around town leaving his gun in an unlocked car, which is the number one way illegal guns get onto the street is through theft. Um, he doesn't leave it on the coffee table uh, with the safety off loaded when his grandkids are there. Um, He's safe. And yet there are a lot of people that do these kinds of things and would call themselves responsible gun owners. There's no reverence there for that item and what it can do. There's this guy, you might know who he is. I for, I can't, I'm blanking on his name right now. He's a guy on Twitter that his entire Twitter feed is full of him just link, him telling the news stories of every single day of accidental uh, yeah. uh, discharges with guns, whether it's you know, yeah. this guy was cleaning his gun, shot himself in the groin like this, that like every single day. So yeah, we've, an entire different conversation is like beyond, you know, beyond the effects of having to shoot someone that's breaking into your home, beyond all, the, you know, being a victim of, you know, gun violence, a mass shooting, whatnot. Like there's so many different angles here. We haven't even begun. I mean, we're just now touching on the idea of all the accidental shit that happens that yeah. happens every single day against kids, against yourself, like you cleaning yeah. the, there was a picture that was viral on Instagram or on Twitter last week from the, from some church. I think it was that, I think it was the, the PCA yeah. Yeah. In, meeting in Georgia and the guy was sitting on the chair and he took out his handgun and had it set on the seat next to him, yeah. probably poking into his side or whatever. He had a, he had a loaded, uh, I would imagine a loaded gun 
sitting on the chair next to him, yeah. um, just kind of propped under his leg. Like what? Uh, yeah. And, you know, this also brings into conversation the idea of like, how are we valuing life? Yes. Like what have we deemed uh, is, is bad enough to kill someone over? Um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, when we see police brutality, police involved shootings, you know, having drugs, not a death sentence. No. Um, you know, resisting arrest, not a death sentence. You know, back when we lived in Tennessee at our local Walmart, one day there was a guy there that had a gun in the parking lot and he saw some people leaving the store who'd like stolen a bunch of stuff. And he took out his gun and fired a couple rounds in the middle of a Walmart parking lot in the middle of the day. Like we have lost any context for like that someone's life, whether or not they've committed a crime, stealing material items from a Walmart yeah. was worth you shooting them and potentially shooting anybody else in the parking lot. Yeah. How, I mean, the value for life there from a political party who says they're the party of pro-life. Yeah. That's a problem. Like life is worth more than a few hundred dollars worth of stolen stuff from Walmart. And yet this guy thought he was going to be a superhero and like kill a, a thief. I don't think I'm even going too far to probably think that if that was in Tennessee at a Walmart, like that guy probably goes to church on Sunday, probably yeah, has some yeah. sort of faith background, right? So the interesting thing, and I want to begin to wrap up here, respect your time, but the yeah. one of the interesting things that you get to do that I, I still get to do, but not as well probably as you get to speak into this, uh, the very shaky foundation that so many Christians find themselves on when they call themselves pro-life, yeah. right? Um, they, when they say pro-life, they're just talking about one thing, the mm -hmm. abortion and everything else is all other kinds of conversations around life, not as sacred, not this, right. not that we care about this, this, uh, you know, their, their argument is we care about this baby and needs to come into, you know, it come into this world. Um, I'm not going to take care of it, but that's a whole different, that's a whole different issue. Sure. But you get to talk about the, the, yeah, this, the casual nature of how we talk about life, especially somebody we don't know, somebody we yeah. think is, is less than us, a criminal, whatever. Yeah. The ease in which that person pulls out their gun to stop somebody from stealing a toaster oven in some groceries or whatever. Like, it's just, it's just insane to me the the, the, how quick someone would. And I, I would imagine he took that out with the intention of like, he's not, a, he's not a good enough shot to know if he's going to kill them or not. So he was ready to kill someone, yeah. not injure or do damage, to, do yeah. damage to someone, maybe permanent, um, yeah. to someone that was stealing a few hundred dollars worth of stuff. So, yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're doing this work. I know it's hard. I Thank see, you. I see a lot of the shit that you have to deal with in the responses when you put stuff out. Um, I'm so saddened to see that so many of, I mean, probably the majority of them are, you know, white Christian men, right? Like it's a lot of men that feel threatened. Yeah. They feel, and again, you do a much better job than I even do at like having that conversation, right? And 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 it just it just shows their lack of understanding of their their own faith that they say they adhere to, the lack of being able to contextually talk about the history of our country and where we are now versus this document that they hold, you know, as yeah. a national treasure. And, um, 
And the other way that you get to speak into it more is you experienced it. I I grew yeah. up in a very violent country. I grew up in Guatemala. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen people, I got caught in the middle of a, a you know, a, a, a gun battle between, you know, essentially cops and robbers literally mm. walked out of my house. Um, I have seen people get murdered before right in front of me. Yeah. Um, like oh, I've seen it happen, but I've never experienced it. Like I've never had a gun to my head. I've never been shot. And so you have that extra platform that I don't have to speak into this. And I'm, you know, um, very grateful for what you're doing. I also, you know, I send, <laughs> I send my thoughts and prayers, uh, <laughs> to you as you do this work. Um, kind of, as I wrap up here, what do you hope happens? Like, do you want to, you know, you've been talking about this for years, you're writing a book now, what do you sort of envision for the future as, as your platform is obviously growing and you're getting to speak to more people and more kinds of people about these things? Yeah. You know, I, someone asked me this the other day and I don't really know. I, I just kind of want to keep on doing what I'm doing. Um, keep talking to people, keep really, I guess my big goal here is to give people an access point into understanding gun violence through my story and then helping people understand it enough that they feel confident having conversations because so many people I know will say, well, I totally support gun reform, but I'm afraid to talk to people about it because I don't think I know enough. Yeah. Um, and I totally get that because, you know, there is this, the kind of way we have conversations with people is that we are ready for a debate. Um, we're ready to, you know, and, and so much of this, I think is like the way I grew up in church You know, you have to have an answer for, uh, anything someone might ask you about God, you have to be ready to defend your faith. And I think people kind of carry that over into just like how we talk to people who think differently than we do. Um, so what I try to tell people is, is find some area of gun violence that you can learn a little bit about, um, some general facts. You don't have to know everything. Um, I don't know everything. I've had plenty of conversations where I'm like, oh man, I, I, yeah had the perfect, like I'm in the shower later. Oh, I have the perfect answer now. And I didn't have it then. Um, the, the biggest thing to remember is that your conversation will not end gun violence. Yes. It is not on your shoulders. Like when I was writing this book, I had a post-it note on my computer that just said your book will not end gun violence. Cause you feel all this pressure. Yeah. Like you're right. thinking I'm talking to my uncle Joe at Thanksgiving and, and I have to, if I can convince him to support gun reform, we will end gun violence. And it's, that's just not true. And like, yeah. that should bring freedom. Like just have a conversation. You're rarely going to see someone's mind change right before your eyes. What you're doing is planting seeds, giving someone a framework to see gun violence through. So when I teach someone about, you know, the Charleston loophole um, or, you know, another loophole in our system, they might not get it then. But if a mass shooting happens later and they hear about how that person got their gun and you know maybe the background check didn't come back, so they were able to get the gun, they can say, oh, wow, I just learned about that. I'm seeing that play out in real time. I see the damage that's doing. Like we're giving people a, frame, a new framework to yeah. see gun violence through. And so that's really my goal is just to help more people learn new things, see new things. Um, those little things, like they feel so small to us and they feel so inconsequential, but these are the things that change how people vote yep. and change who they give money to yep. and what community organizations they get involved with. And all of these things 
affect the larger thing. You know, we we want to see massive legislation happen in Congress. I would love to see that. But that's not where it starts. It starts in your community, in your house, in your family, with the people you talk to. And those are all good and worthy things to spend your time on. And they are not too small. Um, they, they mean a lot. And they mean a lot to me um, and to other people who are doing this work. Um, and so, yeah, just nothing is too small. Just... Start I love that. Somewhere. Yeah, just start. Just start. Well, I yeah. hope for Solus's sake and Bell's sake and Roman's sake and Henry's sake yeah. that you're successful in the work that you're doing because Thank you. uh, it's a good starting point to realize you're not going to end gun violence. Yeah. But it takes a thousand Taylor Schumann's writing a thousand when thoughts and prayers aren't enough books <laughs> to move the con- it just it just does, you know. Yeah. So you're not going to end it, but you're going to be one of the piece pu- the pu- puzzle pieces in this grand you know, puzzle that yeah. is going to move this conversation forward because it has to move forward. We can't stay this way. We can't keep living this nightmare over and over yeah. again. Like when's the next school shooting? When's the next office shooting? When's the next Pulse nightclub shooting? Like that is a horrific way to live. When's when's my turn, right? Like when yeah. is it going to be me, you know? That's yeah. a horrible way to live. We've got to make strides forward. Everyone, uh, this is coming out on July 13, which means that- 20th. Oh, the podcast. Podcast. Sorry, yep. I'm interrupting. Nope. No, 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 totally <laughs> fine. But 20th, right? So this is coming yeah. out a week before the book comes out. So pre-order it. That always helps boost sales and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pre-order a copy as well um, to make sure that, yeah, we can get some more numbers on there. I know it's an important week, right? These couple weeks leading it up is, to it. Yeah. Um, it's your, I'm sure you're just like, you know, twiddling your thumb, just waiting for those numbers to come in. Yeah. Um, I hope it's super successful. Thank um, you. And we'll definitely keep in touch. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending an hour and a half with Taylor and me. To learn more about Taylor and her brand new book, visit taylorschumann.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-S-C-H-U-M-A-N-N.com. And to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.